Hey guys, welcome to the Covenant Courses podcast. This is Weston Brown, and this is week four of our study, Logos Foundations of Effective Bible Study. And today we are getting into the nitty gritty of the process of biblical inspiration and also how the Bible came to be received by the early church. So a lot of content today. This is a bit of a long one, but I hope you enjoy it. Um, As always, check out our syllabus in the show notes and uh, follow along with some of the reading as well. Let's get into today's episode as we start to dig into biblical inspiration. All right, week four, Taylor. This week we're going to be uh, getting into the question of how did we get the Bible, um, which I man I don't know I as I talk to people who are either new believers or who grew up in the church without getting a lot of history about the Christian faith I th- I feel like this is a fairly common question. Um, some people have never considered where the Bible actually came from and how it has come to be in our hands. Other people have delved into that topic a little bit more and have been maybe surprised by some of the things that they've learned. Um, what, what about you? Was this ever like a question for you, or was it just something that the Bible's just there and I kind of, you kind of accept it as being there? Yeah, I think it really was. I think it was just kind of there. Um, I was always a big history guy, and I still don't ever remember yeah. just kind of diving into, how did we get this book? Where did yeah, this all come from? I, I, yeah, I don't think this was really... I mean, I don't know that I really came to a full understanding of this until I was an adult. Yeah. It wasn't something that was ever brought up in church that I can recall growing up. And, um, you know, I sometimes joke that the church that I grew up in just sort of, uh, I don't know, that we just didn't talk about church history much at all. You know, sure. it was like you had the apostles and then you had Billy Graham. <laughs> you know? He's basically the next apostle. Right, yeah. I mean, like the church, the quote-unquote church history stuff that we maybe discussed was 20th century type stuff, by yeah. and large, I think. Um, or were um, things that had come out of like the revival movement of the 1800s yeah. and 1900s. And so maybe that's a maybe that's a flaw of the evangelical church in America to mm-hmm. not discuss church history, but I was part of the Catholic church in yeah. South Louisiana and still... You know, I don't remember there being much about at least the literary history of the Bible. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what's so interesting about the Catholic Church is you are, in a sense, surrounded by history Yeah. in a Catholic Mass, and and yet if it isn't really unpacked for you, you can sort of be oblivious to it. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I think for, for some people this has been a big question um, or sort of a mystery to them. Other people maybe just haven't thought much about it at all. Um but it's what we're going to get into today. How did we get the Bible? And as we get started, Taylor, let's just recap a few things that we talked about last week and the week before, just to give us a little bit of a, of a refresher on what the Bible actually is to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. So the Bible, uh, this is one book that is made up of a bunch of books. So we're talking about a document that was written over the span of 1,400 to 1,600 years. Uh, there was input from at least 40 human authors, or I think we said voices. Yeah. The, we have the New Testament that was written over the span of about 50 years. Um, and then this omnibus, I'm, I'm becoming yeah. more prone to using that word now, 66 <laughs> books in total, 39 in the Old Testament or the Tanakh, and 27 in the New Testament. 
Yeah. And if that's new information to you, you can go back and, and check out a podcast from the last couple of weeks where we delve deeper into some of those facts. Um, some key words for us to consider this week. Um, one is uh, something we've already talked about, which is the word canon. Um, we will talk about uh, the canonical nature of the Bible, or we will sometimes refer to it as the canon. And a canon in this context is a collection of literary texts that are accepted as holy scripture or accepted as genuine. Um, so we will talk about the canon. We will talk about um, the process of a book becoming canonical this week. Um, or sometimes the word canonicity will be used as well. Um, all of that relates to certain books or literary texts being accepted as Holy Scripture. Mm-hmm. We've also talked in recent weeks about uh, these sort of, what have been sort of buzzwords, especially in evangelical Christianity over the last 30 or 40, 50 years, and, and they're the words inerrancy and infallibility. And uh, just from, from a definition standpoint, inerrancy refers to um, something being without error. It is inerrant. And then infallibility refers to something being incapable of error. It, it, it cannot be wrong. Um, so inerrancy and infallibility. And those words get applied to the Bible. Um, but I think one of the things that people misunderstand is that most of the time when biblical scholars are using those words, they are not talking about the like pleather-bound you know, NIV study Bible that you have on the shelf at your house. That's right. They're talking about what are called the autographs of Scripture. And the autographs of Scripture are the original texts of Scripture that were written by, written directly by the human author or the author's scribe. Um, of which we have none. Of which we have none. Yeah, they are, you know, so ancient that there are none of those in existence today. So any... Um, any biblical, ancient biblical texts that we have today are copies of the original texts or the autographs of Scripture. Yeah. And um, some people get real nitpicky about this, uh, the, the, like the, the wording here, because sometimes, and, and I, I do this sometimes, I'll, I'll, I'll refer to them as the original autographs, <laughs> which is actually like a Department of Redundancy department thing. Yeah. Right? Like... It, the word autograph implies that they are original. And, um, and yeah, inerrancy and infallibility relate to those original documents. Um, and, and we're saying that those are the ones that were inerrant and incapable of error. Yeah. Um, yet none of those exist anymore. And so we'll, we'll talk some about, so how do we process that? What do we do with that? And I guess that'll factor in pretty, pretty largely when we're talking about our translations again, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, canon, inerrancy, infallibility, autograph, four key words for you guys to remember. Uh, a few others as well. Uh, I'll mention these now, and then we'll define them a bit later. Um, but inspiration is something we'll talk about. Illumination, apostolicity, catholicity, and orthodoxy. Yeah. Big, big fancy words uh, that we're going to get into today. So uh, let's talk first about the writing of Scripture. We've talked about what the Bible is and sort of how it's structured and how it's made up. And we've talked a little bit, Taylor, about 
the Old Testament and how it came to be from the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh. Mm-hmm. Um, but take us down this road of, of, of the actual writing of Scripture, and um, let's just talk a little bit about potentially how that happened. Yeah. So by doing this, I guess what we're immediately jumping into is inspiration, right? And yeah. so we're going to yeah. go through inspiration, and what we're talking about when we when we do this is these books of the Bible, especially, well, right now we're talking about the New Testament. This, These books were written by God through human authors. And so when we say inspiration when referring to these books, we're talking about the supernatural influence upon the writers of Scripture that caused them to accurately record God's truth. So in this case, we're talking about this 50-year span in the first century of our apostles writing down the books that we now know as the New Testament. Yeah, because what we said last time was by the time Jesus came around, the Old Testament as we know it today was already accepted, or, you know, whatever word you want to use, it was accepted or received or recognized by the Jews as being the Word of God. And, and why wouldn't it be when you consider what's in the Old Testament? You know, we've said the first five books of the Old Testament are the books of the law. Like, these, these, these are literally the laws that God gave to Moses and the people when they were in the wilderness. Um, you have the writings of the prophets. You have the writings of kings like David and Solomon. So these things, uh, over time, had come to be recognized by the Jews as being Holy Scripture, and that is uh, verified by Jesus and the New New Testament authors who reference the Old Testament constantly. Um, Jesus is constantly alluding to or even quoting from parts of the Old Testament. Um, and so I, I think just about every book in the Old Testament is referenced in the New Testament. There might be a few gaps there, but certainly every significant section of the Hebrew Tanakh is referenced in the New Testament. Um, and so again, that le- leads validity, lends validity to the Old Testament being the Word of God. Most of the time when we talk, ab- talk about how did we get the Bible, what, what people are really asking about is how do we get the New Testament? Sure. Like, how did we get um, these 27 books in the New Testament, and how did those books come to be recognized as Holy Scripture alongside the Old Testament? And so, um, so yeah, so we talked about inspiration there briefly, this idea that somehow, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has, through the Holy Spirit, directly influenced the writers of Scripture— in such a way that he has caused them to accurately record his truth. And I think the thing to recognize there, Taylor, is that we're talking about something, like even as we describe that, we're talking about something that we don't fully understand, Yeah. right? Yeah. Like, like, I can't... We're, we're going we're gonna to give you guys today some theories of how this happens, but the reality is, is this is an incredibly mysterious process, I think. Yeah, which we've pointed to already in the fact that the Bible demands faith from us. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, this is going to be one of those areas where yeah. you you can't pin down exactly what inspiration looks like, you know, the, the exact process that these folks go through, that these authors went through to write down these words. But we have some pretty good theories. Yeah, and the Bible points to, um, I think, certain elements of this process, but at no point does the Scripture 
lay out like a like a systematic account of how the process of inspiration happens or how it works. Um, so there's no there's no book of the Bible that you can turn to and find, hey, step one, here's what happens, and then step two, step three. Um, so, so everything that we're going to be talking about here, I, I think, has some root in Scripture, um, but it all there's also a speculative nature to some of this as well. Like maybe this is how it happens, and I think it's quite possible, Taylor, that uh, <laughs> you know that these are just like sort of our best approximations hmm. of how to explain this because we're ultimately describing something that is supernatural in nature. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't even know if it's possible for us to act actually accurately um, put into words this process. You want to just skip it? <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> um, well, and, and, and I think, that, I mean, that's funny because this can be really controversial for people as well because um, in some of these different theories of inspiration, you have people who hold firmly to some of these and, and almost believe them to be gospel truth, even though they are theories, like just yeah. by definition. So meaning these are questions we're bringing to Scripture, not necessarily questions that Scripture is proposing and then answering. That's correct, yeah. And and so to that end, there's nothing wrong, certainly, with having a perspective or an opinion or a point of view, and there's nothing wrong with finding support for that view and, and, and holding to a particular view, but but hold it loosely, like recognize that this is not Holy Scripture we're talking about here, that we're, we're talking about a theory yeah. of how Holy Scripture was written. And um, no matter what your perspective is, our view is that this is the Word of God, right? Yeah. Like this is what we've said from the beginning, that this is God's revelation of Himself to humanity and His grand plan of restoration through Christ, that that's what the Bible is, what it's about, um, and so that's that's the place we're coming through. So let's we're going to walk through uh, four different theories of inspiration, and um, all of this is sort of predicated on the notion that God has worked through human authors to actually pen the words of Scripture. And um, the only, I, to my knowledge, the only part of the Bible that would claim to have been written directly by God um, are the Ten Commandments. Like that, that is that is the only place where, like, literally, the finger of God writes the inscribes these stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe before we even get into these, um, we should look at a key passage of Scripture: First um, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. This is an old standby whenever we're talking about biblical inspiration. Um, but it is true, and uh, 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, and, you know, a common question there, Taylor, is when Paul wrote those words to Timothy— what did he mean by all Scripture? When he right. says all Scripture is breathed out by God, was, did, he, did he mean the letter to Timothy? That he was writing at the moment, yeah. you know? What, what was he talking about? Sure, so he must have been talking about the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. By all Scripture, this was, this was their Scripture. This yeah. was your first century Scripture. This, the Old Testament would have been the Bible that Jesus read and knew. Yeah, the New Testament didn't exist. Yeah, at this point, it was being written. A little bit of it. Yeah, and and it seems clear in Scripture um, that uh, Peter talks about uh, Paul's writings as being Scripture. Yeah. So it's possible that within 
the lifetime of some of the apostles, some of their writings come to be recognized as Holy Scripture. Uh, but yeah, Paul was probably talking about the Old Testament. And one of the things we'll get into today, in addition to these theories of inspiration, is, is just how the New Testament came to be recognized as Holy Scripture. And what we'll see is that really isn't all that different from the way that the Old Testament came to be recognized mm-hmm. as Holy Scripture. Um, so, uh, all right, theories of inspiration. Uh, Taylor, will you take us into the first one? Sure. So that was quite a, a disclaimer on top of this, but I love it. <laughs> these, if you didn't catch any of that, these are theories. Yes. Uh, all right, so our first one we're calling the dictation view. Uh, so this theory of inspiration sees God as the author of Scripture and the individual human agents as secretaries taking dictation. God spoke and man wrote it down. Yeah, so um, in, in this theory, uh, the human authors are purely sacks of meat holding pens. Yeah, this right? is one step removed from the golden tablet yeah. view of Scripture. Right, right that, that being that, hey, this just sort of magically appeared, or somebody found it. Yeah. Um, yeah, this, this really does turn, um, to some extent, the human authors into robots. Right. Um, or automatons, that God... Um, sometimes you'll hear this maybe desca- described as like the, uh, the, you know, like the holy trance view of mm-hmm. biblical inspiration. It really is an inspiration when you get down to it. Like it's it's that God kind of came on somebody and they, you know, just, you know, became sort of possessed in a right. way and then wrote down these words. Um, are there any like positives with this? Yeah. So it, it seems that in certain places like Jeremiah 30 uh, verse 2, we have, we have some maybe something to kind of prop this view up uh, when God says to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you. So there's, I don't know if maybe this is a, I don't think this is necessarily a pro of this view, but it's at least some evidence to it. Yeah. And and maybe a pro would be that it puts a lot of weight on God as the author and the one with the authorial intent. Mm. But it, sh- it certainly strips it away from the human. Yeah, so there are, there are a number of moments in the Old Testament where, where God delivers his word, um, typically through prophets. Pro- right, right, through prophets. Like, so you just mentioned Jeremiah. Jeremiah's uh, a prophet. Um, Moses would be one of these. Well, you know, God literally dictates his law to Moses, mm-hmm. and Moses writes it down and delivers it to the people. So there are moments where this kind of thing happens, but but there are many, many, many more moments where this clearly is not what is happening, or we're not um, we're not aware if it is what's happening. Yeah, um, you know. So I mean, again, with the Old Testament, I mean, even just the Book of Genesis here, like the Book of Genesis is clearly a, a compilation of stories that more than likely had been handed down through oral tradition, you know? I mean, prior to things being actually written down and recorded, oral tradition was um, something that was far more important than it is to us today. And and stories were guarded and cared for, and there was a lot of, I think, um, 
importance given to the fact that stories were handed down accurately. Yeah. And so, you know, even with just the book of Genesis prior to like actually receiving the law, it, it doesn't seem like a dictation. It seems like we're just writing down what we already believe to be true about God Yeah. and what has been handed to us. However, I guess not to go too far to the other side of the spectrum here, if the dictation view is on one side, the book of Genesis is also much more than just a collection of the stories because it's a literary masterpiece right. and includes themes and patterns that will really play themselves out on a cycle throughout the rest of Scripture. Sure, yeah. yeah. So just to point out that, you know, we don't think that the book of Genesis was dictated to Moses or to whomever wrote it, but we also don't think that it was just some guy saying, hey, we've been passing around all these stories, telling them over the campfire, <laughs> yes, we should, over that pillar of fire by we should night. Probably we should write, write those them down. down. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, the book of Acts is maybe an even better one to look at. Like, the book of Acts is clearly like a first-person account of the uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the start of the Church of Jesus Christ and the life of Paul and the missionary journeys of Paul. Uh, you know, it's Luke who's literally there and literally kind of keeping a diary, so to speak, of what has happened. Like, and so he's describing for us not necessarily something God has dictated to him, but, right. but what he has personally experienced. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, like there are clearly points to sum this up where there is sort of a dictation thing that's happening, but I would say for the bulk of the scripture, that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. Right. Uh, the second view um, has has fallen out of fashion maybe somewhat, but there was a time where it was a little bit more prominent. But it's called the neo-Orthodox view, um, and, and this relates to a particular theological camp. Um, uh, probably one of the more notable names would be Karl Barth um, from uh, the early 1900s, German theologian. And in this view, the Bible is, is only inspired in that God can sometimes use the words of Scripture to speak to individuals. Um, and, and so neo-Orthodox theologians see Jesus as being the Word of God. Right. Uh, not necessarily the Bible as being the Word of God. The Bible is a witness to the Word of God, who is Jesus, who's like, the real word. Um, and so we use the Gospel of John as the big point of evidence here. Yeah, so because John begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it goes on to say, and now the Word has become flesh, right, and has, right. has dwelt among us. And, and so John really does hold up Jesus as being sort of this divine Word of God. Um, and, and, and there are some positives there because there's a, there's a high view of Christ in this, right? There's a high view of Jesus and his role as the Word of God. Um, and it certainly aligns with what John says of him. Um, but some negatives would be that, uh, for one, it doesn't really adequately deal with the way that God spoke to prophets, for mm -hmm. example, in the Old Testament, where God literally gives his word to prophets, and they then say, thus saith the Lord, and declare his word to people. Um, in that sense, the word is not Jesus, yeah. necessarily, even though their prophecies might be messianic in nature or have to do with the coming Christ. Um, 
it's it's not like the incarnate Jesus, certainly. Um, so so that's that's maybe an issue with this. Um, but but I think the bigger issue is that it denies that the the actual words of the Bible are the word of God. It really is trying to make the case more that God can use this literary artifact to speak to you, but but the actual words may not be the actual words of God. And a common criticism of this is, you know, well, how's that any different from saying that, um, you know, that God could use the Chronicles of Narnia to speak to me? Right. Because, because that's possible, right? Like, I could be reading something, and the Spirit could um, illumine something in my heart when I'm reading or watching or experiencing anything, yeah. right? Like, the Spirit is active, and... Um, so, so yeah, it, it does diminish, I think, the Word of God. It lowers um, the Bible to the level of really all literature, or maybe elevates everything else around it. Yeah. And it's got to mess with your interpretation, if this is your view. It's gotta, it has to mess with the way that you yeah. read the text and then get to a point of application in your life, because if this is not all God's Word, yeah. what yeah. do you do with it? Yeah, I'm, 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 I would assume that... God, and, and, and this is what's hard about this is because I think a lot of these guys um, had a high view of Scripture. Like, they didn't necessarily have a low view of Scripture. Um, again, these are theories. These are our attempts to sort of explain some of this. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like if, if, the, if the actual words are not the Word of God, then then like the onus is on me to sort of pick and choose what I want to receive or to treat as authoritative. Um, and, and that just seems kind of dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And so maybe, maybe the next step is to look at the exact opposite view of that. Yeah. So these first two, the dictation view, the neo-Orthodox view, I'm I'm sure there are people out there that that hold to these even today. They're certainly not mainstream um, in today's world. But these next two, especially this next one, Taylor, um, is probably the most mainstream view, particularly within evangelicalism. Um, Yeah, and it's called the plenary verbal view. So, so what is that? Right. So this is the view that rather than what we just talked about with the neo-orthodox view, where, you know, not all of the words in the Bible are the word of God, the plenary verbal view says that, no, actually every single word in the Bible is the very word of God. So this this isn't about inspiration um, in so much as ideas or thoughts, but the actual words of the text themselves. Yeah. So... Yeah, we use 2 Timothy again, 2 Timothy Timothy 3, 16 and 17, um, as kind of a basis for this, which uses a a very unique Greek word. In fact, this is the one time we see this word, right? God breathed, Mm. theopneustos. Uh, Scripture is breathed out of the mouth of God. The Bible's words are thus God's very words. Yeah, so that seems to be the case that Paul's making, even, even if he's referencing the Old Testament here, right? Right. Not necessarily the New Testament. He, he's making the case that what what makes that holy scripture is that the very words are the words of God, um, that they have been 
breathed out. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, throughout the Bible, there is this connection between the breath of God and the spirit of God. Right. Um, Ruach in, in the Hebrew in the Old Testament gets translated as spirit and wind and breath. And, um, and so to me, even when I read this, I, I think, man, there's got to be some kind of connection here because the spirit of God is so clearly present and active in the process of, of inspiration. Right. So uh, another important text here is Second Peter one twenty one, um, which maybe maybe is the best uh, passage for giving us a little glimpse into the process of inspiration. Second um, Peter one twenty one says, "For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." So there he's he's referencing direct, you know directly prophecy. But when he says prophecy, what he means is true prophecy, not false prophecy. Right. Like there's clear, clearly been a lot of false prophecy that has been produced by the will of man, whether for monetary gain or fame or acclamation or whatever. Um, but, but no real prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man because prophecy by its very nature, by its very definition, is the word of God, right? Like it, it is prophetic because it has come from the Lord, and it is what he would have declared. Um, but, Peter says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Um, and so this gives us this image of, like, men are speaking, human beings are speaking these words, but they are being carried by mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit, which is a really, um, it's a really beautiful image. Um so a, a lot of positives here with the plenary verbal view. And again, this is probably the most uh, widely accepted view within uh, yeah. the church today. Um, high view of the scripture as the word of God, that the very words are the word of God. Um, I think it gives us a little bit of a better explanation for how the process of inspiration really works, yeah. which is, is somehow the Holy Spirit is carrying along these human authors. Um but there are some issues as well, um, and I'm going to lean on some things that theologian Michael Bird has pointed out. Um, one of the things that Michael Bird questions is that that perhaps maybe this view leans a little too heavily on saying no, every word in the biblical text is the word of God, and and a couple things that he points out is uh, one is in First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15, 16, the Apostle Paul says uh, to the church in Corinth, you know, when I was with you before, I, bapt I maybe baptized some people, but I don't really remember exactly who I baptized. Right. And um, so, so Michael Bird's question is, well, so when Paul says, I don't remember exactly who I baptized, was that something God inspired him to say? Um, you know, like, was the Spirit of God carrying him along in saying those things, or was he just sharing... Uh, you know, just something from himself, right? right? Was like Paul being Paul. Yeah, was he just sort of, you know, making some small talk here? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't really remember exactly what happened. Um, or what about when Peter writes that Paul can be easily confusing yeah. when folks are reading him? <laughs> yeah. Right? Like that's right. that that seems to point pretty clearly to some personality differences. Yeah. Uh, another one, uh, Michael Bird points to is the beginning of the Gospel of Luke because there's sort of this opening introduction where Luke uh, addresses 
the gospel to this person named Theophilus, and what Luke says is that he's carefully investigated the story of Christ and the life of Christ and, and wants to like um, share this with Theophilus. And so when uh, what Michael Bird says is when Luke says, I've carefully investigated the life of Christ, I believe him, yeah. right? Like this isn't just something God wanted him to say. It, it's reality. It's what happened. Um, so, so was that the word of God? You know, were those actual words the word of God, or was that the word of Luke? Yeah. Um, so, so that's one of the common uh, questions that 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 gets posed, and and part of the problem with that question is the fact that it it then puts me in the driver's seat of trying to parse out what is the word of God and what's not the word of God. That's right. You know. And so that again, um, we've talked about that a little bit, but that again, that's kind of dangerous when when I'm I'm the one or you're the one that is in the driver's seat of going, this is God's word, this is not God's word. You yeah. Know? Um, so uh, that's that's a big thing. The second possible con with the plenary verbal view is that at times the Old Testament is referenced in the New Testament. We've already mentioned that, but. Sometimes when it's referenced, it's uh, either paraphrased by the New Testament authors um, in the same way that you would do if you were talking with somebody just in normal conversation and you go, oh, well, you know, it's kind of like when Paul said in Romans X, Y, and Z, and you don't quote the text exactly. You paraphrase your understanding of the text. Um, We get some of that in the New Testament from the Old Testament texts. Um, also, sometimes the New Testament authors were quoting from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so when, when the emphasis is so heavily on the, like, every word is the word of God, um, does that become problematic for us? When in the Old Testament, these, these exact words are the words of God, but in the New Testament, when those things are quoted, they're quoted differently or they're paraphrased. Does that create a problem mm-hmm. within this? Um, so that's another common, you know, just sort of water balloon that's thrown at yeah. the plenary verbal view. That was interesting. So uh, again, this is uh, perhaps the most commonly accepted view or theory and um, this would be the one that I think we subscribe to most fully. But this fourth one has, has gained some traction in recent years, and it's called the dynamic view. You want to walk us through this, Taylor? Sure. So this is a response to the plenary verbal view by Michael Byrd, right? Yeah, and, and he's certainly not the only one who um, is a proponent of this. Okay, he's just one of many. But, but, but he is a, a, a significant voice, I think. Gotcha. So... I guess we'll use his quote, the way that he describes this, the dynamic view, this dynamic theory sees a concursive operation of divine and human elements involved in the process of writing scripture. So the spirit of God directed the writer's thoughts and concepts while allowing their respective personality, style, and disposition to come into play with the choice of words and expression. Uh, And I do think we see some of this, especially in the examples that we just had pointed out because it was Michael Bird who pointed those out. But in the way that we see Paul's, you know, misremembering something or his personality and how maybe it differs from the way that Peter talks about Paul, and we get, we see some of this going on. We, we definitely see their, their personality, their expressions, the, these authors coming into play. Um, and this does seem to give a good explanation for some of the problems that were in the plenary verbal view. 
Uh, but what are the downsides to the dynamic view? Yeah, I mean, so this view is trying to reconcile the divine inspiration of the Bible with the fact that we still get the individual personalities of the human authors coming through. Um, and and it seems to me that this is just, this is a great spotlight on the fact that we just don't fully understand what's going on here. <laughs> because it's, it, I mean, we're 2,000 years into this thing, and, and we're still struggling to try to put words to what's happening here. Um. So uh, a few of the problems would be that this possibly confuses biblical inspiration and divine illumination. Illumination is when the Holy Spirit gives a believer the ability to understand the Word of the Lord. Um, And what the dynamic view is trying to do or trying to say is that the biblical authors were inspired in their thoughts— by God, but then, but then it was sort of on them to put those thoughts into words. Mm-hmm. So it's tamping down some on the plenary verbal views, emphasis on these are the very words of God, and it's it's taking more of an approach of saying no, these are these are the thoughts of God that He gave to the human authors, but the the language that's employed is unique to them, mm-hmm. which is why we get their individual personalities coming through. Um, and so what's, what's challenging there is what seems to be the case with, with the New Testament authors, for example, is they didn't know that they were writing Holy Scripture. Um, there was not this, like, conscious... God has given me a word, and I have to declare that word to the people now. It was, it was less prophetic than the Old Testament prophets were. Right. It's a, it's a different thing. Um, again, the book of Acts is not Luke going, the, wor- the Lord has given me a word, and I have to find a way to translate and communicate this word to the people. He's just talking about what happened. Yeah. Um, in the Gospels, it's like we're we're describing the life of Christ and and what transpired and what he taught and what he said and what we saw. Um, and so this this dynamic theory, um, while I like the fact that it's trying to reconcile the very words with the actual role of the human author as well it sort of puts the human author in this position of having to interpret God's thoughts and adequately put those things into words, and it opens up the question, like, how do we know they're doing that correctly? Like, yeah. how do we know, you know, because you and I can, if you ever had, like, a, a thought, and, and, you, and you go to verbalize it, and it just doesn't come out the way that you want it to. Almost right? every time. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, you know, some people... Some people um, communicate better through writing, right? Like it's it, for some people, it's easier for me to put my um, like actual thoughts on the page and communicate clearly and concisely when I'm writing. For some people, it's through speaking. Yeah. Um, and so it it maybe opens up the door for there to be some question as to how do we know that God's that what God inspired the authors to 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 think is actually coming through adequately and correctly in what's being written. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I think this view can open the door for for it to seem like some things are the word of God, but other things aren't. And how do we know the difference between yeah. the two? I mean, it can get into the weeds really quickly. Yeah. And um, part of part of the reason why it can become weedy is because we, we, we can't come away with like a hard and fast. This is actually what happened here. Yeah. Um, all we can really do is speculate and we can look to passages of scripture as we've done and make some guesses. Um, but I, But I think it's important for us to have something of a mental picture of how how this all transpired and and how God works and what he what he has done yeah um, and and any view that you know kind of shoots us out on the end of the water slide with a low view of scripture I think is a problematic view because a low view of scripture being a view where, where we go well maybe some things are God's word but other things aren't God's word um, that's problematic again because um, what can happen is you have a particular view on things, and I have a particular view on things, and other people have a particular view on things, and other people have a t- particular view on things, and um, and somehow we're all right. Yeah, you know, like that just doesn't make sense. Um, we see this even today. I mean, when you get into the world of biblical scholarship and you start asking questions about these things and you start really digging in with other people, um, I mean, it becomes clear that there are a variety of different positions that are out there on, you know, topics of theology. Um, and But everybody's not right. That's right. You know. And so, so. this takes a lot of humility, but it's also worth knowing a lot about, or at least knowing a little about these different Um, stances, because they exist. Mm -hmm. Folks hold these. And I've often found, with stuff like this and uh, other topics that are very often debated, I enjoy knowing about these because if I find myself talking to someone that seems to be in one of these camps, I can better appreciate then kind of the the lens that they're looking at Scripture with. Yeah. Yeah, so we want to come away with a view, no matter no matter how you understand the mechanics, we want to come away with a view that this is the Word of God, that it is authoritative, that I'm not cherry-picking certain things and leaving behind other things, that I am taking this as God's revelation of Himself to humanity and as the primary way that I learn about who Christ is and what Christ has done and what the point of all of that is. Yeah. Um, so with those things in mind, let's let's then talk about, we've talked about writing. Let's, let's talk about how these writings came to be received by the church as Holy Scripture. Let's talk about how they came to be canonized. And let me start with a quote. This comes from uh, a guy named Daryl Bach, who is a New Testament scholar at Dallas Seminary. And what he says is that, and, and let me preface this as well by saying that, again, most often we're asking the question, how did 
these books come to be recognized as Holy Scripture, we're primarily talking about the New Testament because by the time of Christ, the Old Testament was already recognized by the Jews as being Holy Scripture. So Daryl Bach says, the New Testament came to be recognized over several centuries, which is really no different from the way the Old Testament developed. The first definite list of the 27 New Testament books comes in A.D. 367 from Athanasius, an early church father. Uh, Origen, who is another early church father, may have had the same list in A.D. 250, a century earlier, but texts differ as to whether he named the book of Revelation. So this predates any official church councils where the canon was discussed, These were simply the books that were used by churches and recognized as the authoritative Word of God. Why these books? Bach says, apostolic roots. All have direct connection to the apostles, direct witnesses to Jesus. Hmm. So I think that's a pretty good explanation for um, how these 27 books of the New Testament came to be. Um, the books in our New Testament. Yeah. Um, But there were three tests of validity for the New Testament books that were applied by the early church. And um, let's spend a few moments talking about these, because in many ways, they relate to the Old Testament as well. Um, At least two of them relate directly. Um, and, And these tests of validity are called orthodoxy, apostolicity, and catholicity. Take us through orthodoxy, Taylor. All right. So orthodoxy uh, basically means it's generally accepted doctrine or practice. Um, this is something, I mean, I, I guess within the early church, basically it means it was true, sure. right? Yeah. There was, there was nothing that, there was nothing that um, was refuted by any of the Old Testament books. There was nothing within the New Testament that conflicted with itself, and anyone who was following the way of Jesus in the early first century and the second century were following this doctrine. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I I mean, orthodoxy, and that word orthodoxy or orthodox can be applied in a variety of different ways or settings, maybe I should say, but but always it's referring to what, what is the generally accepted doctrine of a particular group of people, as you just said, like what, like what is the the thing that is like mainstream when it comes to our understanding of what truth is? Yeah. So there were no fringe books that made it into these twenty-seven in the New Testament, right? And and I think that's important to point out because there are other books, like there are other books that could have potentially been considered, right? For... Letters, Gospels, other Revelations. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and some of these uh, are still around today. Um, uh, most of them come, most of the ones that I think people would point to, like there is, uh, what, a Gospel of Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a pretty well-known one. There's um, the Shepherd of Hermas. Yeah, uh-huh. that's there's... an early church document. Uh, there's um, some writings from just other like apostolic fathers, like sort of that next generation after the apostles. So there's Clement. Um, and um, there's a, a book called the Didache, which was sort of an early church manual. Um, these are these are other things that are out there that could have conceivably been included in the New Testament. But so is this our New Testament apocrypha? 
I don't know. I don't know that I would I would call them that because you know what's I mean this is this is kind of confusing maybe but 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 I it's like with the apocrypha that we talked about in the last episode which are all books that were written during the deuteral I mean uh, during the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament um they are they are works that were never accepted by the Jews as holy scripture right so they they never like met the like kind of passed the test okay. as far as the Jews were concerned um, for being the word of God. Um, and, and yet they were still good books potentially for, for people to read or, or study with, with these others that we're talking about. Some of them are, are things you could possibly put into that type of category the the one the one caveat there though is that I, I think part of just like the definition of apocryphal is that they're of of like debatable origin or dubious origin. Okay. And there are certainly some things that could potentially be um could have that definition applied to them. I, th- I think the Gospel of Thomas is one of those where it's like, we're not so sure about this. So this would bring us back to the question of orthodoxy then, which is why they're not yeah. included. But then there are other things where it's clear, like like the, the writings of Clement. Like I think it's pretty clear that like what the origin of those things are and, and that they are perhaps profitable to read. Um, they're just not Scripture in the same way that, you know... The writing, as we said before, like the writing of C.S. Lewis is not holy scripture. Right. Um, these aren't the very words of God. Um, but yeah, like it, it does, um, the, like one of those tests is orthodoxy, is, is what's contained in this document in line with what everything else says. So if, if you have a document that, um, you know, that comes out that says, uh, well, Jesus was married, right, and had children, and, um, and you know, here, here are all of these stories about things that happened that are not included anywhere else and don't seem to align with anything else and go against what has been the mainstream belief and, and understanding of the church, then, then that would be something that's, that's flying in contrast to orthodoxy. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, the key question we're asking there, um, do these books hold to the teaching of the Old Testament and the faith that has been handed down by the apostles, or does it in some way subvert that or present a different thing or a different perspective? If so, maybe it is unorthodox. Right. Okay. Uh, the second one is apostolicity which simply means having come from or directly connected to one or more of the 12 apostles. Um, so this is what Daryl Bach was talking about a, a couple minutes ago in, in that uh, quote that we read. Um, he said, you know, why, why these particular books in the New Testament? Apostolic roots. Yeah. All have a direct connection to the apostles. All the New Testament books were not written directly by apostles, but all have a very clear apostolic connection. Um, and so that's that's the key question that's being asked with apostolicity, and this is the only one of these three that uh, you know would be a little bit different when we're considering the Old Testament because we're not asking the question of connection to an apostle, right? With the Old Testament, but but we do see the authoritative figures 
Correct. Yes. So, I mean, when you consider who the authors of the Old Testament are, Moses, David, prophets, prophets, Solomon. Yeah. I mean, I mean, these are these are figures that have historically been seen as authoritative men of God within yeah. Judaism. Okay. The last uh, test would be Catholicity. Um, which is not in any way referring to the Roman Catholic Church. This is using this word in the way that we use it when we say the Nicene Creed, which is referring to universality. Mm-hmm. I think, is that a word? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is. Universality. It is now. Um, are, are, these, are these things universally used and accepted? Are these books, these texts, universally used and accepted by the church? Right. Um, so, so I mean, just in the most simple terms, if you've got 10 churches in a region and three of those churches accept a particular book as Holy Scripture, but the rest of them do not, then you don't have Catholicity, right? right. Like, you don't have universal acceptance. Um, so so that's, that's one of the big tests, along with apostolicity and orthodoxy. So the key question here is, do various communities of Christians around the world accept these writings as Holy Scripture? And so when we're talking about this happening in the 2nd and 3rd century, by Catholicity, by universality, and uh, by saying communities of Christians around the world— we're talking about as far as the church has spread. So we're looking at what the Mediterranean. Yeah, we're really Spain. talking about the Roman Empire. Yeah, okay. primarily. Yeah. So basically, all of the churches that existed within and around the Roman Empire by the second and third century, where these books and letters were available, yeah, we're using them. Yeah, and and so you know, I, I think a common question is why does it take three hundred years, you know, for for us to decide that these are the books, and um, you know, a couple things that I think are worth pointing out. Uh, one, uh, according to Daryl Bach, it, it potentially did not take 300 years, right. that possibly even as early as the 200s, you have this list of 27 books. Um, so, so that's something that we're a little fuzzy on historically, I think. It took a long time for these writings to disseminate because everything was being copied by hand. Right. And, you know, who knows how long it took for um, the, the primary churches in the region throughout the Roman Empire to, to even have copies of most of these books, mm-hmm. because they're ha- not only having to be copied by hand, but they then have to literally be, like, hand-carried, yeah. you know, to these different places. And so I know that historically early on, you have this situation where, um, you know, some churches have these books, some churches have these books and, um, and everybody at that point in time did not, I mean, there, there was no Bible in right. the way that we have it today. And so there is just a period of dissemination and it really isn't until the three hundreds that, um, I think the church is in a position to say, we we have all these things. We're able to to accurately gauge the catholicity of these books throughout the known world, yeah. and get a read on that situation. Is does persecution factor into this as well? That if if you sent all of your best and brightest minds in the second and early third century to one place to go discuss the Holy Scripture, I mean, is that just not church suicide? 
yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, clearly in the 200s, there are periods of great, you know, intense persecution. Um, and I, I think some people would probably argue that persecution on some level sped up the dissemination of some of these things because they were such an encouragement to the churches during this period. Okay. Like, like it was... It was it was all they had, you know. Yeah. It's like we've got the word of God through these writings, um, and so I mean, and we'll talk in future episodes just about the sheer number of New Testament copies that there are, in ex- ancient copies in existence today. Because, I mean, it's it's probably I guess the most copied book in human history. Yeah, oh, it's and, gotta be. And it just it just skyrockets during the the early part of. Uh, the first millennia. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, uh, orthodoxy, apostolicity, Catholicity, those are the primary metrics that were being applied to the New Testament. And um, in uh, the end of the 300s, you have a, a church council of the worldwide church, which at this point, uh, the church is not split. There is, there is one Catholic church, which included the Western Roman church and the Eastern Roman Church, what we now call the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, it's not for hundreds of years that those those two primary uh, kind of mother churches split um, in what's called the Great Schism. Um, so at the Council of Rome in 382 uh, AD, um, that that's seen as being the council where the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament are like officially recognized by the church as being canonical, as yeah. being holy scripture. Um, and it's not, my understanding, at least, Taylor, is, is it? it's not like that they went down the list and like debated each of these at this council. It was more like, no, because these meet the requirements of orthodoxy, apostolicity, or um, authority, and Catholicity that like we're now receiving them or recognizing them, you could say, yeah. as as the church in an official way. So okay. that happens in 382. Um, so by the end of that century, it's it's pretty much set in stone. Yeah. Let's stop there for today. Um, that's a lot of information. We've gone through. Uh, four different theories of biblical inspiration, um, really hopefully directing your mind and your heart towards seeing this as the Word of God and um, recognizing that that does require a certain amount of faith and belief on our part because we can't fully understand the uh, the supernatural way in which all of this came to be. Um, but then uh, gaining hopefully a greater understanding of how the books of the New Testament came to be accepted as Holy Scripture alongside the Old Testament, which was already accepted as Holy Scripture. And um, that happened through uh, just the dissemination of these writings to the early church, their use of them, um, and then just applying these three tests that we talked about. So uh, let's stop there for today. We'll join you guys next week, and we'll continue on in our journey, how to study the Bible. Bye. Bye.